enjoying the time here at the Bible Lectures. Uh, this technically begins a series of classes that are going to focus on youth ministry. Uh, for those I don't know, my name is Jeff Walling, and I get to serve as the leader of the Youth Leadership Initiative here at Pepperdine University, trying to encourage and support youth ministry and young people uh, across the country. Uh, so I hope if you hang around for the next uh, three or four lectures together, uh, Todd Clark uh, is going to be with us this afternoon, David Fraze, uh, and then at lunch, and this is specifically for those who work in youth ministry, over in the fireside room, Les Carrick is going to be doing a presentation on uh, youth ministry and identity, and for the first 30 that show up, uh, the first 30 through the door are going to get one of his books, as well as codes for the YADA program that he has uh, developed. So if you get a chance, come over and join us for lunch to hear Wes. Uh, I hate this moment, uh, because somehow I got double booked to be on a panel in another class, and this was the class that I was longing to be in, because Scott McKnight has blessed my life in a number of ways. I still remember hearing him speak at a Zoe conference in Nashville on the Jesus Creed, and sitting in a packed room and going, wow, that's been in front of me for years. I'm a preacher's kid. How did I stick in that this? And then reading the Jesus Creed, and then uh, reading Blue Parakeet, and reading other books that just kind of broke my brain open. So I owe a lot to uh, Dr. Scott McKnight, a professor at uh, Northern Seminary, a person who loves Jesus, amazing author, and most importantly, the guy you came to hear talk. So let me say a word of prayer and then turn it over to Scott. Thank you for being here, brother. Mm -hmm. Lord, will you just open our hearts, open uh, our ears, and Father, through your spirit, will you let those in this room hear what they need to hear. Bless my brother Scott. Bless him, his family, his ministry. And Lord, may he have the fruit of the spirit of joy today as he shares with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Please make welcome, Dr. Scott. All right. I uh, want to share with you uh, from a, a project that I just sent to the publisher called Pastor Paul. Uh, it's a book on pastoral theology and Paul. I'm not a pastor, so I don't feel like I'm telling pastors what to do at all. But I can talk about what Paul thought about pastors, because that's my field. So it, it's more along that line, and maybe he can uh, offer some glimpses of what ministry is like. So I would like to talk a little bit about that theme. That's the big picture. And um, to start it out with, I, I want to um, offer a definition of what I think uh, whether it's youth ministry or something else, all ministry, I think, can be defined as this. Is that a, a pastor's responsibility is to create and nurture a culture of Christoformity. To create and nurture a culture of Christoformity. You know the word Christoformity at all? all right. Michael Gorman is a great New Testament scholar who uses this word cruciformity, which means to be formed to the cross, to be, you know, to take up your take up the cross. Thank you. 
I've always liked I've always liked Michael Gorman's category, cruciformity, but I've always felt like Jonathan Storman's trying to call me. <laughs> what should I tell him? I'm in class. Um, this, uh, I've always liked Michael Gorman's idea of cruciformity, uh, but I have one, I've always had one uh, dis-ease about it, and that is that it is not personal enough. In, in other words, really, I don't know that we want to be conformed to the cross of Christ so much as to be conformed to Christ himself. So uh, when I began to work on this project, I knew I was going to use Michael Gorman, and he's got four books on this topic in different ways. Uh, I, I knew I was going to use this, but I, I like my professor, James D.G. Dunn's Christoformity over Chris cruciformity because it brings in uh, the life of Jesus. So I call it bioform. I don't develop this. And, and this isn't useful from a pulpit. Just count, just trust me on that. <laughs> if you use this, people will be impressed, but they won't, they won't remember fully the problem. Bioformity, the life of Jesus, cruciformity. And this is the one no one gets, anastasiformity. And that is the resurrection. These three combined form Christoformity. So it's the, it's the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus that we want to indwell or have indwell us. So that's what I call uh, Christoformity. And our, our mission. In, and, I, and I have a ministry as a professor of seminary students, and I had a ministry of teaching college students uh, where I realized I was somewhere between being a youth pastor, a father, and a professor at the same time. Uh, I found that it, it, any teaching of the Bible, any teaching of Jesus, any gospel teaching worth anything is at the same time pastoral. So I, I think that we all have pastoral ministries, but I, I do not want to suggest for one moment that as a pastor, I comprehend the existential realities of a pastor himself, which I think is, is deeper and intenser, of any, in more intensity than I experienced as a professor. Look, I, I really do only teach one day a week. We can joke about pastors working one day a week, but I really only do teach on Mondays, on Monday afternoons, okay? The rest of the time, I'm in my library studying and writing, or sometimes we have meetings and I lie and tell them I'm sick or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I've never done that, but I, I normally go to meetings. I try to do it on computer as well, so I don't have to go in. But uh, so I, I'm not trying to usurp what I know that you have to do. But I do believe that this is, that a pastor's response, fundamental responsibility is to nurture Christoformity in a congregation and in a group and in himself or herself. That's a pastor's fundamental uh, responsibility. Okay? Any questions on that? So I, I would say that Preaching is not the primary responsibility of a pastor. 
cruciformity is, and preaching is done to nurture Christoformity. So that's that's a slight uh, difference. All right. No questions on this is a good group. Now I want to I want to jump into another uh, category altogether. And that if, if we believe that the pastor's fundamental responsibility is to nurture Christoformity in himself, herself, and in a congregation, then that means that a pastor's fundamental responsibility will always entail world subversion. World subversion. Pastors subvert worldliness. Eugene Peterson said it, as he always says it, amazingly well. He one time explained the subversive task of pastoring. He said, most of the individuals in this amalgam, is the word he used for his congregation. I thought that was an interesting choice of terms for him. Most of the individuals in this amalgam suppose that the goals they have for themselves and the goals God has for them are the same. It is the oldest religious mistake, he says, refusing to countenance any real difference between God and us, imagining God to be a vague extrapolation of our own desires, and then hiring a priest to manage the affairs between the self and that extrapolation. And I, one of the priests they hired, am having none of it. <laughs> but he said, if I'm not willing to help them become what they want to be, what am I doing taking their money? I am being subversive. I am undermining the kingdom of self and establishing the kingdom of God. I'm helping them to become what God wants them to be using the methods of subversion. Surely, I think, say, as I'm reading Eugene Peterson, this is deceptive. He continues, not exactly, for I'm not misrepresenting myself. I'm simply taking my words and acts at a level of seriousness that would throw them into a state of catatonic disbelief if they ever knew. <laughs> right. He doesn't normally talk like this about his congregation. So when he does, I think we have... Uh, we have to tune in. And I believe that it is the case that our responsibility is to subvert worldliness in the church if we are going to nurture Christoformity, which means we have to define worldliness. And uh, I, I don't have, I will say a few things about this, but I don't have a long section on this. But this is something that I am thoroughly convinced of that the American church has lost a vocabulary for worldliness. All right? Now, I grew up, I was telling an earlier session, I grew up in fundamentalism, and we knew what the world was. It was Presbyterians, Episcopalians, <laughs> and Catholics, and all the pagans that didn't go to church in our hometown. But we really knew what worldliness was. Because we knew what holiness was, which was not going to movies, not drinking, etc. 
But we, I grew up with a very strong sense of worldliness. I noticed as the impact of Ronald Reagan and the evangelical alliance with the Republican Party, that evangelical Christians, and I'm not saying you are evangelicals, but you probably read the NIV. <laughs> and that's close enough. That's a try. I noticed that the word world slipped from the arsenal, and the word world was replaced with the word culture. And culture became a good thing, and we were to be culture makers, as Andy Crouch called it, not world deniers. But you can't subvert the world if you don't know what the world is. If the world is culture that you're trying to make better, you won't be a subverter. You'll be an improver. And to improve the world is still the world. Because in the New Testament, Paul and John especially, our responsibility is to abandon the world and the flesh and to enter the church and the body of Christ. And it is an alternative world in that sense, an alternative culture. So we need, we really need a theology of worldliness. We don't have it anymore. All right, now, you may, you may, and, and I may be wrong but for you, but my experience in the church of teaching and preaching for some 40 years now, uh, I, I think worldliness is gone and culture has replaced it. And when I talk about this in certain contexts, people just think I'm an old-fashioned fundamentalist. And I saw on Facebook someone called me the other day, an old-timer fart. <laughs> and I, knew, I knew I had arrived <laughs> when I got that kind of a program. I, I was really out, outdated because I was talking about the world. All right? So we, we need this. Paul knew what the world was. So I'd like to talk about how Paul subverted the world. Now, uh, to do this, I want to set a couple things up. The first one is this. Paul experienced nothing less than verbal crucifixion at the hands of the Corinthians. On Mondays, pastors should be prohibited. All people who work in churches should be prohibited from reading 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13. <laughs> Just don't read it. You probably got beat up a little bit, unless you came off nothing but glory on your Sunday. You can read 2 Corinthians 10 to 13. But if you got hit a few times, which is normal on Sundays, or during the week, you don't want to read 2 Corinthians 10 to 13. But when you are braced for seeing how Paul was treated by the Corinthian Christians, read 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 with this method of reading. Read it and think hard about what the Corinthians are saying about Paul. Because this, it doesn't take any skill in what's called mirror reading to see that they are, they are blasting away at the Apostle Paul for all sorts of things. And it obviously wounded him. Because for three chapters, well, four, 
10, 11, 12, 13. Paul responds. Now, he, he actually says things like he's not defending himself, but it's obvious that he is. Because he's now taken pen to paper on this very thing. Quill to parchment. All right? So he says things like this. I'll just mention a few. In 10.1, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Obviously, they say, when you're around us, you're a nice guy. But as soon as you go off on your trips, you send us nasty letters. Called the severe letter or the grievous letter. In 10.2, he says, those who think we are acting according to human standard. <coughs> In 10.7, do you decide on the basis of appearance? Evidently, Paul was not all that good looking. <laughs> all right, now, you know about the second century text? It says he, he, uh, he had bandy legs, which is bow-legged. He was short, had a long hook nose, and he had a unibrow mm. when it came together. And he was short. So... So that's, that's one description of him, and I just watched the beautiful movie called Paul, called The Apostle, Apostle of Christ. Apostle of Christ. It is a fantastic movie, and James Faulkner, did you, have you seen this movie? We're Christians. We don't see Christian movies. We're not culture makers. We're subverters, so we watch our Christian movies. So. He's a pretty good-looking guy with a really cool beard. That's the only thing I thought was wrong about the movie, I thought. He's just a little... I, I wanted a Paul that just didn't look quite that good. But I'll tell you this story. I just interviewed the uh, uh, director of the movie, Andrew Hyatt, uh, for my podcast. I think it, it might show up today on my blog. I don't know what time. You know, those things are set up. So, at any rate, James Faulkner uh, did not agree to being Paul until almost two weeks before the shoot on the island of Malta. And Andrew told us that when he got to Malta, one of the first things he said to Andrew was, I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian, but I find this man's life fascinating and the story worthy to do. So, now if you watch the movie, it's, he, he does a pretty good Paul, but this is what was cool. Andrew said, just recently, he's been telling people he's been recently baptized. Mm. And it's all because he acted the part of Paul. Mm. He saw that story as gospel. And it, it, there's a lot about that in the movie. Is the God, is Paul learning to do the way of Christ versus some of the Roman hotheads who wanted to uh, pick up arms. So I encourage you to watch the movie. It's, I think it's a very responsible piece for a historian of the New Testament. I'm very suspicious of Hollywood movies, and I think this guy did a great job. And he loves the Bible, Andrew Hyatt. So, <clears throat> on the basis of appearance, Paul says in chapter 10, I do not want to seem as though I'm trying to frighten you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now, what would you do on Monday, if on Sunday your congregation members said this to you, uh, you think you know everything, you're ugly, and you're a terrible preacher, <coughs> my guess is that you would find something else to do, especially if they came battering after you on a routine basis. 
which is what's going on with the Corinthians. This is a several years of correspondence and trips back from Ephesus to Corinth and back and forth and sending people and, you know, during the winter, uh, going up around the, uh, the Aegean through Istanbul, whatever it's not been. Uh, and, and, and Paul experiences a lot of tension with these, these Corinthians. And he says uh, that he thinks that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. So they evidently like some super apostles and not Paul. I may be, he concedes, untrained in speech, but not in knowledge. Certainly in every way and in all things we have made this evident to you. Interesting concession. I know things, but I'm not a very good speaker, and I've made it very clear mm -hmm. uh, that he's not a good speaker. He's also made it very clear. All right? He says, because I do not love you, the question mark? God knows I do, so evidently they're saying, you don't love us. So this is a pastor who's getting pulverized by his congregation. All right, now, we could go through. But just read, when you are on a good day, and you can handle it, because uh, emotionally and psychologically, these chapters can be very, very tough. Um, read 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, and then say, I've got it made. I have never been treated the way Paul was treated by the Corinthians. Now, maybe the Galatians, maybe the Ephesians, maybe the you know, other congregations treated Paul better, but he was really beat up. All right. Any questions on that? Uh, because I want to move to trying to describe the culture that was at work in Corinth that was challenging Paul. Any questions on that? All right. Okay. One of the most important categories to understand Paul's ministry with the Corinthians and Paul's approach to the Corinthians, especially in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, is to understand what is called the cursus honorum. This is the path to or of honor. If you wanted to be somebody in the Roman Empire, and Corinth was a city drunk on its belief that it was a true Roman colony. I mean, they really believed that they were a special presence of Rome in Greece. Right? If, if uh, you wanted to be somebody, you had to pursue the cursus honorum so that you could move along this path from education as a, as a young boy. This is only for boys, men. This doesn't happen for, for women in the Roman Empire. Um, you could be connected to someone on the path, and then you had it yourself. Um, and it's only for elite men. It's not for slaves or anybody else. Okay, so this, but this is, this is the Corinthian, and one path, one one scholar calls it the Corinthianization of a church, is to be addicted to the curses and all. And that is, you got connected to the right people, you went to the right schools, you learned the right speeches, you developed a capacity to give a speech at any moment because you practiced, and you could therefore be extemporaneous in a good speech. You had to be able to do this. 
you had to serve as a general rule in a military expedition where you demonstrated your ambition and glory. So you basically had to be a military hero. So these were the paths. And then you would become things like a deals and you would be connected. Uh, you did certain jobs and you could move your way up. And the ultimate aim of a Roman male in Corinth was to die and have a statue made of them as a monument in the city of Corinth. The city of Rhodes, do you know where Rhodes is? A little island just off, off of Turkey, kind of shaped like this. And Greece is over here, and this is Turkey comes really close to it. And the old town of Rhodes is right here. Uh, Paul landed on Rhodes, and, and every city in Rhodes now claims that he came to their church. <laughs> but the old city of Rhodes was not all that big, and there were at least 3,000 monuments to heroes from that town. And it got to be such a problem that late in the first century, a man named Dio Chrysostom gave a speech at Rhodes. It's a, it's a pretty funny speech. In which he spends most of his time excoriating the Rhodians because they didn't have good monument makers anymore. And they would take old monuments and scrape people's names off and etch in new names. <laughs> and he said, they don't even look alike. You know, he did this sort of thing over and over. And it, it's a long-winded speech. He was a bit of a gas bag, but you know, <laughs> he, he, uh, he wasn't Anglican. That's the way to put it. He didn't want to contain it to 12 minutes. Right. But this, this, is the, this is the way of Rome. And they did not think Paul matched their desires for success. So they were very, very critical of Paul. To be on the curse of Sonora means you had to have noble birth, you had to be wealthy, you had to be triumphant in battle, persuasive powers in public speech, famed in virtue. All right. This is what Paul is all what, what Paul is facing in the Corinthian church that Paul doesn't match up to their standards. They were so used to going to the public square in Corinth to hear public speeches done by great speakers that when Paul started talking, they went four, maybe five on his best days. Not close to a nine or a ten like we heard last week. So they were judging. Maybe they were holding up cards at the back. That was a two for an illustration. Paul, your accent is bad. You don't know how to pause properly. So he didn't learn any of the proper skills that they judged to be so significant. And then there's the problem of personality culture. I am a Peter. I am a C. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is not about theological differences at Corinth. This is about being connected to somebody significant. If you want to be significant in the Roman Empire, you have to be connected to somebody more significant than yourself. So you can name drop. All right? So, you know, I had coffee with Tom Wright. Will listen. No, it doesn't matter if I did or not. I just named him. <laughs> Walter Brueggemann is my friend. Now you win. You know, you you get to you probably get to speak next year at Harper because, <laughs> because you, you connected yourself to the right people. But that this was characteristic of the Roman Empire 
and it falls. And the critical factor is this. Paul knew their game, and he refused to play their game. He knew worldliness, and he knew Christoformity. So Christoformity is set up in Pauline theology against the cursus and all. If you grasp this, everything in Paul's letters changes. Mm. He's subverting worldliness in Corinth. Our churches are filled with people on America's cursus honorum. Mm. They, are, they are, you know. They're wealthy. They live at the country club. They play golf with all the right people. They drive the right cars. They know the right people. They have the amount of money. They expect to be elders because they have the right money, the right dress, the right appearance, tall, thin, handsome. You're successful in America, right? Do you know the percentage of top executives that are tall and thin and handsome versus Paul type guys? It's not good. <laughs> And so the, we, we live in this world. So to me, we have a lot to learn in ministry from the Apostle Paul because he wants us to have an eye for worldliness and to subvert it as we try to create crystal formula. Okay. How did he do this? The first thing is this. Paul's paradigm was Jesus. And the critical passage on this it's not in Corinthians, but it expresses everything about Paul. It's in Philippians chapter 2, and uh, I will then we'll go back to Corinthians. But Paul, in his description or discussion or letter to the, to the Philippians and dealing with the problem of a lack of humility, says, in your relationships with one another, listen to that expression. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, this covers a lot, doesn't it? In your relationships with one another. Let's just think of what it doesn't cover. Nothing. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that Christ had, who though by nature God and in form equal with God, chose not to seize that power, but to surrender that power, and he came to earth, made as a man, died even on a cross, and then was raised. So Paul's the theology is this. In your relationship with one another, die for one another, and then you will be raised on the far side in a greater resurrection. So the paradigm for Paul is Christ and Christ's likeness. I don't know of any bad relationship in a church characterized by Philippians 2, 6 through 11. None. When, when um, I was, I was uh, with a, a pastor not too long ago of a very sizable church <coughs> discussing a major split that could happen in his denomination. And he is a leader for one side. And he asked me, I don't know why, he said, what do you think I should do? I said, 
surrender to the other side. And he looked at me like, whoa, do you know what that would mean? And I thought, he didn't say it, and I didn't say it, but I thought, yes, I do know what I, I think that means. When we die to one another, we express Christophobia. And it's very, very difficult. So Paul is talking about this in 1 in Corinthians, when he says in verses 18 through 25, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those, who, those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And he says, I, this is God speaking, will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now here, wise is the cursus honorum wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of Torah? Where is the philosopher of the world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. <coughs> the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That's Paul's theology of interpersonal relationships, is I am going to embody the cross of Christ in this relationship. That's Christoformity, and that is, is creating or establishing and nurturing a culture of Christoformity in relationships in the church. So his paradigm is Christ. Now, a second, now, so that, that's my first point I would make about subverting the world, is Christ has to be our paradigm. And I want to emphasize this, is that we have to intentionally decide on Christoformity as the culture of ourselves and of those whom we pastor, either a youth group or a church. We have to decide that Christoformity is, is what we're after. Otherwise, we get with the little boy who shot the gun, hit nothing because he was aiming at nothing. It says shot in the air. We have to decide that Christoformity is going to be the culture we will nurture. All right? The second thing has to do with eloquence. Eloquence. Because this is an illustration of Christoformity for Paul. Remember, in the cursus sonorum, in the way of the world, eloquence is one of the marks of the only people who can be promoted. <coughs> now, I know this is being recorded, but you can tell her not to do this, you can, whoever it was. I have a friend named Dan Kimball. Do, do, do any of you know who Dan Kimball is? He is a pastor in Santa Cruz, California. Dan is cool. He has a pompadour haircut, which when you first see you go, and he often wears uh, Doc Martin shoes, blue jeans, cuffs rolled up, and he loves the 1950s music called the Ramones. All right? Well, Dan's a friend. We've, we've met one, we had been at events together, and at one time I went to hear him speak. And this is what went through my head as a professor of a seminary. 
He's not very eloquent. But he's unbelievably effective because he's filled with the Spirit of God. And he exudes Christoformity. I've been around people who are very eloquent that come off to me as sleazy <laughs> and oily. And I've been around a lot of people who are not very eloquent, but they speak in the power of God. That's Paul. All right? Now, I think, I, I like to say this. I think Paul knew what he was doing rhetorically. But we'll get to that. Now, let me talk about, about what is required of an orator. Cicero, the great Roman orator, one of the greatest ever, wrote a book called Brutus. And in Brutus, he describes what is the case for a good orator for Cicero's time. And it became the characteristic of all orators. This is what I wish for my orator, Cicero said. When it is reported that he is going to speak, now often they spoke in court, let every place on the benches be taken, you know, a packed house. You know, it's, a, it's a good feeling when you speak and there's standing room only. It's a little different when only a third of the seats are taken. All right. The judge's tribunal full, the clerks busy and obliging and assigning or giving up places, a list now, they're giving and taking up places. That means you come in, you're more important than him. You get to have a seat of honor, and he gets bumped back. Jesus tells a funny parable about this. A listening crowd thronging about, the presiding judge erect and attentive. When the speaker rises, the whole throng will give a sign for silence, then expressions of assent, frequent applause, laughter when he wills it, or if he wills, tears so that a mere passerby, observing from a distance, though quite ignorant of the case in question, will recognize that he is succeeding and that a true orator is on the stage. This is common in the Roman Empire, is to have someone who you know is a really gifted speaker. Right? We rarely invite to our pulpits, to our churches, people who aren't really good speakers because we value oratory in a very worldly way, all right? Do we value spirit-filled, Christ-shaped, cruciformity-type people, or do we, value, do we value the people who have the best stories and the best looks and the deepest voices, you know? All right, I won't, I won't say much. First Peter, I mean First Corinthians. And so it was with me, brothers, chapter 2. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. So I, I think that Paul is saying, I knew you thought, I knew you were going to say I was a terrible speaker. And I, I was afraid of that. He admits it. He was nervous. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. You know, those, ex, those speeches prepared for extemporaneous moments, great illustrations drawn from great people in the history of Rome and Corinth and Greece and Asia Minor and the history of Israel. He didn't come prepared like that. 
but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. There are some people who believe. Now, if you know who Abraham Mallory is? He's a Church of Christ guy. He taught at what, Harvard or Yale or Yale? Yeah. Abilene Christian. Abilene Christian. Then Yale. Then Yale. Same thing. <laughs> so, Mallory said that when Paul was judged for his sermons, he got around zero. <laughs> right. Now, I believe personally that Paul was pretty rhetorically gifted. He could be. But I believe that Paul intentionally subverted his skill and ability in order to make the message of God clear. So when he had the moment and the audience was within his hand, he, he let go. Instead of moving them where he wanted, he just let the message of the gospel do the work and let the Spirit of God do the work instead of his skills. So he backed off on transitions. You know that? You know, you, you learned this in some place when you're given speech, speeches or sermon or talk, have smooth transitions. When I'm speaking to preachers groups, I often go, that was point one, this is point two. And you know, they all know that that's wrong. And I'm doing it just to kind of punch them in the nose because, you know, that's what matters. Not your skill for transition, but the significance and the substance of what you have to say. And when I read Philemon, good grief, Paul is gifted. He, he pushes and backs off and pushes and I'm not going to do this because I'm an apostle, but just by saying that, he's done what he is and I'm not going to command you, but by saying I'm not going to command you, you've let him know that you could command him and therefore he's been commanded, but you didn't do it yourself and he goes back and forth and by the end he says, confident of your obedience. Oh, you gave it all away. But rhetorically, all he did was he just kept pushing Philemon deeper and deeper in the corner. And he had him nailed. But he said, I want you to make the decision about Philemon, about Onesimus. I'm not going to make it for you. And he says, he's all in your hands. So rhetorically, he could, he could pull it when he needed to. But Paul knew with the Corinthians that the last thing he wanted to do was impress them. Because in the, in the Corinthian world, if you were a teacher, you could be supported by, by being paid by a group of people. And they got all kinds of public honor if they had sufficient funds as an association to hire someone like Paul as their teacher. Or you could charge for your fees. Paul did not get hired, and that really ticked him off. He did not allow them to pay him, and that ticked him off more. Well, what really ticked him off is Paul chose to raise his own funds as a manual laborer, which is my second point. He did manual labor. Rabbis did some manual labor, but as a general rule in the Roman Empire, if you did manual labor, you were a nobody. For Paul to choose to be a tent maker, which meant he worked either with linen or leather. We don't know for sure, although some scholars think they know. To, to choose to do that was to choose to do the opposite of what the Corinthians wanted him to do. Dio Chrysostom, who I told you about giving a speech on the island of Rhodes, 
also gave a speech in Tarsus, Paul's hometown. And he said this, linen workers have no status and are a useless rabbit. It is impossible for Paul to have chosen to be a linen worker or a tent maker and not to know what that meant as status. He chose a job that nobody respected. And he did it on purpose for the Corinthians to see that he would not play their game of the curse of Sonorum. He was going to subvert the world intentionally. Christoformity called Paul to be a manual laborer. But with others, he could take money. But with the Corinthians, not till they grow up will he will he ever give them a chance of supporting his ministry. It's brilliant. Paul has the right, 1 Corinthians 9, 1-6, he has the right to be paid. He has the right to be accompanied. He chooses not to. He chooses to do manual labor because he wants to participate in crystal form. One final verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 12. <laughs> Listen to what he says. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, he says. So Paul chooses to work manually. Now, it is true that he's not afraid of reminding his audiences of this on a, on a regular basis. We worked manually day and night over and over. So he's reminding people, and sometimes you wonder if he's whining or if he's not reminding them that he chose this path in spite of what they prefer. Right? So, first, Christ is a paradigm. Second, eloquence. He chose not to be eloquent. Third, is that he chose manual labor rather than a glorified honor of, honoring position on the curses of Nora. Fourth, when it came to titles, is very interesting game that Paul plays. If you study, you know, in the churches of Christ, you get into these things, what an elder is, etc. Who's a minister? Who's a pastor? Who's a preacher? I know, I know. You, you have your own curses and all. <laughs> but it's very interesting to study Paul's the terms that Paul chose in his world, because the terms of the greatest honor in the Roman world, he did not choose, like a deal. He does not choose praetor, proprietor. He doesn't choose those terms. He chooses the word diakonos, servant, which we translate so gently in an Anglican refined manner, sophisticated and all, with the word minister. You know, what does that mean? It doesn't mean what diakonos means. And Paul combines diakonos, regular, with the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Now, that's not very nice. And he calls his fellow workers sunergoi, fellow workers. An erga, an ergos, an ergoi, the workers, that's a manual laborer. That's, a, that's an artisan. This isn't somebody sophisticated. He doesn't ever call his friends friends. You know, he never uses the word philog, philos, philoi, for his associates. That's interesting because a friend was a connection to somebody who was significant in the Roman elite world. No, he uses all the wrong titles for himself. And I just read one. 
he refers to his group as scum of the earth. <laughs> you know, this isn't very, it's not, you know, I want to grow up and be scum of the earth. I know, I got to tell you. I grew up in Freeport, Illinois. My father was a coach. You know what our nickname was? The Pretzels. <laughs> we make ESPN every year for bad nicknames. You know what it's like to be an aspiring athlete and say, I want to be a pretzel? <laughs> How about warrior? Something interesting. You know, we, we, Paul chooses all the wrong terms for his audience. And then for his leaders, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 is another one of these beautiful moments. Paul says, thanks be to God. He's talking about being a minister of the new covenant. Thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives. So they're scum of the earth, they're captives. They are being processed into Rome as people are going to be killed at the end of the, of the parade. That's what this uh, description in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17 is all about. So Paul uses all the wrong terms. So it is, it is important. It is important that we pay attention to what we are called. Right now, this happened to me. I was a gospel student. I was writing in gospels all the time when I got my PhD and I remember so clearly making a decision students would say to me what do we call you and I always said Scott <coughs> and they said but you're my professor I said no we are brothers and sisters in Christ call me by the name my parents gave me and some students refused they just thought that was inappropriate and too familiar they weren't the ones I was worried about. But I think we ought to pay attention to that very carefully in our churches and in our cultures. It's one thing to have a title. It's another thing to insist on a title. It's even worse to create a culture of titles. That's what we need to avoid. This was a culture of titles. And I cannot believe for a minute that Paul didn't say, we're going to subvert it. When he decides that there, when you call yourself the scum of the earth, this is Rodney Dangerfield, Bill Murray type stuff. Right? It, it's a way of subverting your own status intentionally. But Paul's not doing it for humor. He's doing it so that people will see Christ as the true, or the world's true Lord. Finally, on perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Um, and in the history of New Testament studies, this verse has played way too much of a role, but I think it's pretty clear what Paul means. So from now on, he says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's the cursus and oral, right? No one according to the flesh. No one according to that system of evaluation. So when Paul saw people, he saw Jews and, and Greeks who had been brought into Christ, and now they were not friends, they were not people of status, they were siblings, brothers and sisters. And people who were outside the family of God were people who could become siblings for Paul. And that's how Paul viewed the world, is that he wanted to bring people to Christ. Again, I want to emphasize, you and I live in a culture like the Roman Empire 
of cursus sonorum. And in youth culture especially, who, of kids who have ambition, who want to become somebody and make a difference, where 90% think they're above average, because being average now is being below average, we have a responsibility of teaching that ordinary is okay because most people are ordinary. That's what ordinary means, you know. Very few people are extraordinary. Michael Jordan and the Chicago Cubs. That's extraordinary. We're <laughs> <laughs> the World Series champ. I got my hat over there if you just want to. We're the World Series champ. You want to, if it's been 108 years since you want to use, you celebrate for 100 years. <laughs> I don't care if the Astros won last year. That was just an afterthought. We won the year before. Praise to the Lord. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know how I got there. But here is a, a great line from C.S. Lewis in the 1961 edition of the Screw Tape Letters, which is no longer in the preface to the Screw Tape Letters. He was talking about hell, which he liked to talk about, C.S. Lewis did. He said, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. You can't describe Corinth any better where everybody is on a pursuit of advancement. And we need to subvert that culture in creating and nurturing cultures of Christoformity, where the highest value is the one who serves the other, where the one who does not bring attention to himself or herself, but brings attention to others, where glory is not haphazardly and false humiliatingly deflected, but there is a genuine uh, desire for God to get the glory and for other people to receive honor. That's, that's the kind of culture that we can create. So, so when I was asked to talk about culture, I said, let's subvert some culture. Uh, so questions, we have five, four minutes. Four minutes and 10 seconds, yes. Well, I'd be curious, not just from you, but from anyone else in the room, because I know we probably have some good youth ministers and stuff, but what is the cursus honorum of our young people today? Okay, I, I want to just mention this, because some, do, does anybody here really read Andrew Root? All right. He has a new book out called Faith Formation in the Second Age. All right, now, he's talking about the age of authenticity. The age of authenticity arises with my generation and your generation, where it was, you've got to be me. you just got to be yourself. And the more true you are to yourself, the more authentic you are. And that is <coughs> our essential cursus and all. That is not Christian. To be true to yourself. And when I, when I say this, to some of my younger students, they just think I'm stupid. <laughs> they think, you've got to be kidding me. Of course we have to protect ourselves. Well, there's some truth in that. 
But I would say that's part of it. But I'm, I'm interested in what others, yeah. And what blows my mind is like part of his argument is youthfulness is the measure of authenticity. So the more youthful I am, yeah. the more authentic I am. And he says churches have kind of fallen into this game as well because he's like in the age of authenticity, faith formation has been turned to experiencing divine action to just trying pro, uh, sociological programs to keep our youth because the more youth we have, the more youthful we are, the more socially relevant we are. And therefore, it's like, kind of like, it's reading it's just kind of blowing my mind. I'm like, okay, am I doing this? You know? Um, am I falling prey to this as well? Yeah. My rule is after 45, no skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this, is, this is quite an indictment. Yeah. And Andrew Root, along with another uh, uh, writer on this, named Thomas Bergler, who has two books from Erdman's on euthanization on after World War II and with the Billy Graham crusade uh, and uh, uh, Youth for Christ, there became an increasing attention to being more youthful. And being relevant to youth is fine as long as you're not 80. And that's what's happened, is that youthfulness characterizes evangelicalism rather than maturity. Yeah. Yep. So this is, this, is, this is really, I would say right now, that is the ultimate cursus enormous, is to be forever young. That's probably a song. <laughs> Ruth, is there a song, Forever Young? Yeah. yeah. It's got to be the Beach Boy. You. The greatest band in history. Yeah. Does the term counterculture fit this? Yes. This right here. Yeah. This is counterculture. But I don't think we should desire to be countercultural. That's negative. We should desire to be crystal-form, and therefore subvert worldliness. And that's, subverting worldliness is being countercultural. Yeah. But it's not an end. Our goal is not to subvert. Our goal is to nurture crystal-formity. And if you nurture crystal-formity, you will be countercultural. Well, you should invite Andrew Root. <laughs> I think he's a, he's, he's a prophet on this topic. Well, thanks so much for... for